0: I start off with a, with a burning desire. Immediate, massive action, repeated consistently for as long as it takes. That's it. You're listening
1: to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations, all while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their
0: income and more. Now here's your host, Robin Waite.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome back. It's the Fearless Business Business Podcast. I've got to put my teeth in for this episode quite clearly. Uh, I've got an amazing guest actually today, a very good friend of mine, um, an amazing business owner. Um, we share a few clients in the medical aesthetics um Uh, business um, as well, market. Uh, Richard Crawford Small, he has 15 years uh, working within the aesthetic medicine sector, um, has worked with many different technologies and products, and has also had a stint in the Navy as well, which I'd love to hear more about. So welcome to the Fearless Business Podcast, Richard. Hello, Robin, how you doing? Welcome, everybody. Great <laughs> to be here. I'm good, thank you, Richard. Uh, right, let's dig straight into it, because I'm just curious about like, how you managed to make the transgression from Navy into medical aesthetics, because it's
0: such a niche business. So how did you get into medical, medical aesthetics? Yeah, what a question to open up with. <laughs> transgression is probably the right word, actually. Um, so I think that the, the thread that connects it all is, is tech, actually, it's technology. Um, so yeah, I did. when I left school um, at seventeen. I went straight into the Royal Navy. I did eight years, um, sort of as a weapon engineer um, gunner, essentially. And um, after I'd done a few sort of different deployments, I basically just realised that my my career led else lied elsewhere. I had a pretty bad knee injury as well. Actually, playing rugby, so it kind of. Um, put me shoreside for a couple of years, and they gave me an opportunity to kind of rethink things a little bit. And I decided that, you know, the, the world outside of the armed forces was had a bit of an attraction to it. So it was that, that was around 98. And it was a time when the kind of the internet started to come alive. You know, we had I was doing um, a project then, based around sort of Windows NT networking, so it's pulling different systems together. While I was still in the navy, um, and I really enjoyed it. So, but I wanted to get much more into the sort of creative aspects of it. I'd always been interested in comic books, music, art, film. Um, you know what what was called at the time, multimedia. And um, so, when I had the opportunity to basically leave universe, leave um, the navy in Portsmouth, I went straight, literally, into uni. uni. University of Portsmouth and I did a really early degree I suppose now it's called creative technologies but back then it was called entertainment technology and it was literally cobbled together from all sorts of different disciplines so sound engineering, uh, art and design, graphic design, uh, project management and you know uh, sort of coding all sorts of bits and pieces to create the sort of project managers of the future. Um, really interesting, good, good degree, I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, trouble is, when I left, it coincided with the dot com crash. <laughs> so <laughs> um, we had, so essentially, you know, lots of very well-qualified people out there not getting work, so there was, not, there was nothing really for me. Um, but also, I'd realized at that point that I didn't really want to sit at a computer. Um, I enjoyed, I was still you know, quite a people person, and enjoyed you know, talking. Quite a lot, as you probably gather through this this uh, interview, and um, so I went into sales, and I started selling um, essentially multimedia packages to design agencies, etc., etc. Did I did quite well at it? But it was, I was just running out of any, running out of enthusiasm for it. And um, a friend of mine was working for a, a biotechnology company, which sounded very exciting. Um, and um, what they were looking for were essentially self-starting salespeople who were quite entrepreneurial and innovative. And because I've kind of created a few different sort of, I suppose, entrepreneurial businesses, so working with the design agencies and essentially creating multimedia functions or sales for them, um, essentially you know, effectively creating little business units for them. Um, I thought it'd be quite fun so I applied for the job I got it and it was selling a product at the time it's a technology called a hyaluronic acid I don't know a clue what that was to be honest I learned pretty quickly um, into the glamorous Botox industry which at the time was just starting to kind of get, gain traction so I got it into that sector really early on but it was what attracted me to it was a combination of Say pure sales ultimately, but also is the ability to kind of help shape businesses. Um, and because of my understanding of how tech worked, of how you know the connection between you know connecting, you know, communicating one person to another through tech, it kind of worked quite well. And also dealing with medics, their essentially their understanding of sales, marketing, business development was pretty low. So we got to grow. Lots of businesses quite quickly in a market that suddenly just boomed. Um, the company I was working for got acquired by another company called Allergan, who manufactured Botox. So they took the filler, which was called Juvederm Ultra and Botox, put them together, created a different portfolio. And that was it. The kind of market was set. Um, and that was my career for the next sort of eight years, as working for Allegan, essentially selling um, hyaluronic acid fins and Botox and growing and helping develop the market. Um, 2011 I left I just wanted to that entrepreneurial streak is, is deep in my DNA it's not going anywhere um, so I kind of got a little bit tired of working for the man um, set up my own consultancy business to kind of do what I was doing before helping bro- grow brands grow businesses and develop those um, and that sort of led on a, on a path to creating the aesthetic entrepreneurs it's, it's an amazing story. And actually like, you know, cause obviously
1: um, you've niched specifically with aesthetics businesses and I have yeah. a couple of clients who also um, run aesthetics businesses. And one, one of the fascinating things about that industry, because it's, it's super niche. It's a, uh, um, you know, it's, it's one of those purchases which people make, which is like, you know, it's, it's like luxury shopping. It's going out and buying mm-hmm. a hand, handbag or a Range Rover, you know, yeah. you go and get your Botox done in a way. Uh, I know that obviously um there are instances where people have sort of, um, you know, issues with their skin and things like that. So there are genuine medical reasons why they also need treatments as well. Oh. But what what's um, astounded me with the, int- the, with the industry is the margins in it, which I don't think you can get in any other industry. And it baffles me that there are still estheticians out there. And the same goes for the coaches and consultants we work oh. with. There is good margins to be made in coaching and consulting, but somehow some people still manage to cock it up
0: yeah yeah you um you make you make your point i mean <clears throat> you, you they can i'd say they can turn 50 quid into 500 like that um they can make money faster than I can the margins are you know are kind of set by their own their own market um it mar- that kind those kind of margins mask an awful lot of things I mean you can make money like that you can have a pretty ropey business if i'm honest. Um, and most, a lot of the businesses start off as kind of boutique or lifestyle. So it's just one person, owner operator, you know, clinic in the house, then they'll move on to, into a salon. So the overheads are quite low. The only time then it starts to to crack is when the overheads increase. So they'll invest in it. They'll do what they normally do and just, yeah, I'll get that. I'll get that. I'll get that. And then what they'll do is they'll do that, but they'll do it with a piece of kit that costs 25, 30, 40,000 pounds that has overhead repayments. You know, got. And I, when I work with them, I say, well, you've got to think of it as a separate business unit. It's not just a piece of kit or a laser machine or anything like that. But they'll buy it first without the thoughts on how to commercialize it. And then all of a sudden, you've got this thing now sat on a wage bill. And then they'll hire a therapist to, to facilitate that. So you've got these two things and suddenly sat on their overheads. They didn't expect in a business that's not particularly well run, puts pressure on it. They panic. Prices drop. And then they're in this horrible kind of death spiral where... It, they can't make enough money to break out the lifestyle of, the, of their, their personal lifestyle has been extended to the limit of the revenue that's coming in. Then we have problems. And actually, funny enough, I'm sure you have the same experience as coaches is, you know, that's where I catch my clients. They do not ring me up when everything's great. Yeah, <laughs> They ring me up halfway through the halfway down the death spiral. Um, and so it, does, it doesn't a take a lot
1: it doesn't take a lot for that death spiral to kick in though because you've what you've outlined there is you know turnover increases so we'll start mm. spending more money and then all of a sudden turnover just dips a little bit like that yeah. and now we're in a deficit and it doesn't actually mm. take a lot when you start to sort of you know that for those margins to disappear and evaporate very very quickly mm. one of the challenges i've seen i remember going into a um uh a uh, local clinic to see a, a therapist per- It's a personal thing. Obviously, you know, I have mm. mental health issues. So I went to see a hypnotherapist mm-hmm. uh, to go through a couple of things. And on the way out, I, I looked into one of their rooms. Um, so it's kind of used by lots of different therapists and things like that. And there was a, a sign up, I spotted it and it had big letters, fat freezing. And I was like, and obviously yeah. I you and know, I, you know, I know, both know what that is, you know, and you mm. look at things like cool CoolSculpting, the, the really high end sort of fat freezing. Mm. Well, I looked in this and it was like fat freezing, three zones, 149 pounds. I was like, (gasps) you know, and they had this shonky looking Tomy's, my first fat freezing machine in the corner of the room. And it's like, Oh my God, it's shocking that that goes on. And then you Mm. compare it way, you know, and this is where I talk a lot about pricing bandwidth. So you've got that experience that I saw there, you know, and I, I, you know, It's almost like I wanted to go in and just unplug that machine, throw it out the window to save a few people's lives because it's going to mm. destroy some lives. And at the other end of it, you've got the, the super expensive, but very you know, high quality um, mm. you know, brands like Sculpts and things like that. And, and yet it seems that when people get into this business, they tend to kind of migrate towards the cheaper end of the bandwidth. They think they've got to com- like be cheap to compete on price or to compete yeah. in the market. Mm. so how do you you've obviously seen this firsthand so how do you start to kind of shift people's you know perceptions of how they should be pricing for what they do
0: the first I mean the first thing I do is after I try and understand the reason why they think that thinking the way they do um, and it depends how what they essentially it depends what their, their heritage is what they've done before they reach into aesthetics um, you have sort of two, two sides of the entry point one is they're either kind of a a beauty background or it's a medical background. Um, from a beauty background, you, you get that less because essentially when they, they, they don't have the, the hangover, if you like, of working in the NHS. Now, NHS you know, NHS wonderful institution, but it's also really good at removing the value from the people who work in it. And that's the first thing I have to fix is that whole sense of value. They have you know skills, talent, experience, but not used to dealing with money and definitely not used to asking for money or charging for anything. So if you're not, if you don't have that kind of um, background, suddenly, you know, fair exchange is something, is an alien concept. So that's the first thing you have to do is to get over that sort of fear of asking for money, the, the mindset issue. When I've done that, and in some cases, if we're successful at doing that, then we can move on to actually looking at a proper business strategy. But until I quieten the mind down, it's very, very difficult to get any traction because you always come up against fear. It takes time to overcome that. Um, you know, recently, actually, a conversation I had with a client yesterday was about you know competitive pricing. Well, you know, how I set my pricing. She said I set my pricing, and then look at my competitors, work out what they're doing. I just asked her, well, why did you do that? And it was like, well, because that's what I should do. It's, like, well, really, you're allowing your competitors, your competition to set your pricing for you. Why don't you set your own pricing? And it was suddenly, it was like, right, I'll leave that with you for a couple of days because, you know, that's going to percolate for a bit. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you have to, sort of challenge, perceptions, challenge um, established logic, belief systems, status quo, what, you know, what the bloke down the pub told you, what your mum told you, what your boyfriend said, you know? Well, I I think that's the scary
1: thing, isn't it? Because our value system is based on, you know, it's it's pre-built, pre-programmed into us, Mm. you know, by the time we're three, by our parents and Mm. the arguments probably which used to go on in, in the household, you know, around money and things like that or scarcity paying for the mortgage and we've got to go out and work and all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, you think about it by the time you're three, you have no, or when you're three, you have no concept of, you can't really count, can't add up. You have no concept of money or exchange (laughs) yet Hmm. your, your value system has been designed for you. It's quite scary. And I think a lot of people are quite, they're quite afraid of unpicking that. Yeah. One of the things I hear a lot, especially with small business owners, um, and especially exactly like you said, you know, I, I mentor on a couple of programs for people in public services. And the first thing they say is, I am the brand, I am the business. So what they're doing there is they are linking themselves and their value mm. system directly, you know, on the other hand, with what their business is going to be doing. Mm. And you need to separate the two. You can be skin flint over here for yourself, but your mm. business requires you to go out and be brave and ask for lots of money in order yeah. for it to survive. And you have to separate the two. It's the same mm. as if you have like an emotional wobble as well. You can be all over the fucking shop over here, but over here your business needs you to be stable. You mm. have to separate the two off. And and I think when when business owners do that, they have like pretty major ba- breakthroughs. You know, I've yeah. seen people double treble their turnover in the first year of just having that one moment of realization. Hmm. Incredibly powerful. Um, how, how do you see um, how do you see the industry kind of changing, sort of moving forward? Because obviously, it is becoming more competitive.
0: Yeah, it, it's becoming competitive because the barrier to entry has dropped, um, and. <sighs> How I is this how it's how it's gonna evolve, I would like to see it evolve. I think they're probably two different things. I mean how I sort of position myself in the market is I don't I don't tend to work with the sort of the, the lower end of it. Um, you know, my sort of the goal of aesthetic entrepreneurs in a sense is to create the high performing, high value businesses of you know, five years time. So we're sort of starting that now. And it's interesting what you're saying about how detaching themselves as a as a person from the business it's actually why I think the aesthetic entrepreneur brand has actually worked so well, so quickly is because it gives them something to hang on to is we are an aesthetic entrepreneur. So it creates that almost sense of community unity, but also pride in what they are doing as opposed to, oh, I'm just this or I'm just that. And that's how I'm hoping, well, want the business, the the sector to, to, to move forward. It's, you know, it's a source of annoyance for me that when I go to it, 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 well, three things happen if I go to a kind of like a dinner party, for example, right? And you sat around the table and have the conversations. There's a few people that you don't know, and then it'll what you, it will be the sort of what you do for a living. They'll find out that I'm in someone else. Invariably, someone else will tell them that I work in the aesthetic cosmetic surgery sector. Um, they will hear a bit of a, about my background. Someone will go, "That's really interesting." You know, you used to sell boobs, fake boobs for a living. It's like, yeah, that's what I did. Um, and then the market, then the conversation will invariably come round to uh, Leslie Ash or the, you know, Jocelyn Wildenstein or you know, the human Ken Doll. It automatically hits the negative side of things, and that's a sort of massive source of frustration for me because the industry is better than it is better than that. Um, You know, it's better than the Daily Mail headlines and, you know, the botches. Um, You know, if you look at the positive impacts it has on people, quality of people's lives, you look at people like Katie Piper, you know, who have been, you know, horribly disfigured, but then also had their lives restored. That doesn't just happen for one person. Happens for lots of different people. The change in people's self-esteem. Um, you know, it's not just vapid, vacuous vein treatments. It is, yeah, these do have an impact. Well, a majority of, of yeah, majority, majority of the treatments of do. Are,
1: are going to be things like, you know, teenagers who have struggled with acne, all, you know, exactly. since their hormones kind of kicked in and they've yeah. got no other way to control it, you know, than have you know, even something simple like an LED treatment. But that happens in an aesthetics clinic. You know, and then all of a sudden somebody finds out, or oh, you've been going to an aesthetics clinic, you must be having Botox, you know, and yeah. they start to make these assumptions. And it, mm. it's it's such a shame because like you said, the industry does so much good. Mm. And I, I love the fact that you're kind of on a, I feel like you're on a bit of a one man mission to change some of those, um, especially through the book as well. We haven't mentioned the book yet, but um, you wrote the book, Changing Faces, um, you know, and it, and it feels like having having read it, you, you wrote the book in order to not just change the industry, but also change people's perceptions the industry which i think is great
0: yeah um i think that it's important to try and do both because one is sort of like you know from a personal point of view you know as a an individual involved in that industry i don't want to be thought of as profiteering or you know ruining people's lives and i call people up and say you know it's absolute bullshit you know it's but um but the reason that the industry is thought of that way they, they have to take some responsibility for it and it's because of the way that it's been allowed to be communicated. It's because they've allowed these things to happen. Um, you know, I, I I don't ever get involved in the clinical aspects of it. From my point of view, is if you're working with me, clinical, that's your responsibility. You should know your job, right? You should be good at that. But from a business uh, marketing perspective, that's where I can I can help. Um, but the ma- the messages that they communicate have to change and it has to become more about less about Botox and fillers and treatments and more about philosophy, values, vision, business, culture. You know, why are you doing this? Why have you decided to do all of this? And it's not just about, oh, I I want to make more money. Sometimes it is, but that's not really going to inspire your clients to come and have treatments with you. You know, how you can make them feel, you know, become more experienced focused, more than treatment focused is, is the way that I want people to, them to start to communicate, and it is happening. It's starting to see a slight turn, especially in you know, the clients I deal with anyway, because I make them do it um, and become more proactive in that messaging. So, not allowing the, you know, the the UK media to drive the narrative and actually have the industry drive them a positive narrative instead.
1: Well, that, that ethical and moral message is something which I think it's not just um, something which aesthetics businesses um, need to start implementing. It's every business Mm. because, um, I mean, so we'll stick with aesthetics, obviously that's, that's your niche, but, and, uh, you know, imagine you've got somebody who's vulnerable coming into a clinic thinking that Botox is a thing that's going to improve Mm. their confidence. And on the flip side of that, you have a you know, maybe somebody who's just started out a nurse who doesn't have the, or not, not, not a nurse nurse an NHS nurse, but mm. you know, a, a clinic, you know, somebody who's just um, got trained up to deliver Botox injections, but they're not necessarily there in terms of people skills. Mm. And the one thing at the back of their mind is I've got a mortgage to pay. So I need to sell this person Botox or I'm not going to be able to put food on the table and keep mm. my house. That is where I think there becomes a very fine line between it starting to become unethical. Um, yeah. And it's the same, it's not just, it's not just in aesthetics. This happens in every business, you know, people taking on clients because they need the clients, not because it's within the best interests of the client. Mm. You know, if, if I have a, um, a prospect who maybe is struggling to get over the financial investment of coaching, for example, but you know, if I know I hand on heart that I can create an amazing result for them, I will fight aggressively to take them on as a client. Mm but I'll do the complete opposite if it, if the opposite is happening. If I'm like, actually, <laughs> yeah. do you know what? You need some help, but I'm not the right person for you. Or you know, maybe they need some specialist help. Maybe actually they need to go and speak to Richard or they need to go and speak to a Facebook ads guy or a, mm. you know, a, a social media marketing expert or something, which is things which we don't do. Um, mm. Then you know, I'll, I'll send them away, but with a referral. It's a bit yeah. like you wouldn't go into a GP surgery, you know, next bleeding, um, Mm. you know, and then they just kind of turf you back out in the street and say, Oh, we can't fix next. They'd say, no, no, we'll book you an ambulance and we'll send you to A&E because you need to have an operation right now to have your bleeding Mm. neck fixed. Mm. Um, It's about doing, I think for every business, the right thing by their clients, not the right thing by themselves.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, there's, there's no right way to do the wrong thing. And it was when I first sort of started off, actually in in, you know, in two thousand and four, when I first got into the market as a, s- a surgeon. Said to me, because the big problem we've got is that when you put a large amount of money in front of anyone, you challenge their ethics. And you know the, the ethics of you know of a medic of medical practitioners is the Hippocratic Oath, right? You know, it starts off do no harm. And I think I do think sometimes for you know, certain people that gets forgotten. The majority of the market, absolutely, it's still right there at the core of their of their being, in their DNA, core of their being. Um, but there are some instances where you know you can see that being challenged. And one example I've got is um, I was in a uh, when I was working pretty much predominantly with um, breast implants, and. Um, I was uh, in a lecture and there was a very senior surgeon who was sort of giving the presentation to a group. Of, he's actually you know, an internationally renowned surgeon who was giving a presentation. And um, one of the guys in the audience put his hand up and said, you know, I, I know exactly what size implant I'm going to put in my patient. As soon as they walk in, I know exactly what I'm going to do with them. and." The the, the 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 surgeon presenting just sort of stop said absolutely well done and he I thought okay that's a little bit weird he goes no well done and this guy sort of relaxes back in his chair feeling a little bit you know satisfied he goes, so you're telling me that before you've asked that person a single question before you've understood anything about their motives anything about their goals anything about them psychologically, anything about them physically, you know exactly what you're going to do for that person. Absolutely well done. In fact, you got you should be up here talking and I'll be down there listening to you because you are on a different planet. And um, we were like, yes, because that was what needed to be said. Yeah. But the problem is, is that that kind of belief system was in quite a few people at the time. And that's what allowed the things like the PIP, you know, debacle to happen where you had those substandard implants being allowed into the marketplace. Um, it's when sometimes those messages just get repeated that oh, it's not about product; it's about this, it's about that, it's about that. Things start to go a little bit awry. But I think you know back to the sort of point about you know how this mar- how things are going to move forward is. I don't think things like that will be allowed to happen anymore um, because. The, the people who are in the market, who we are working with, question a lot of things. And it is, like you say, there's no right way to do a wrong thing. Everybody knew at the time, they must have known that if you've got one company who's selling a breast implant for over £300 per implant, and you've got another company that's selling one for £50, quid, there is a difference between the two. And as a professional, you have a responsibility to interrogate the person selling them to find out what that difference is. And that didn't happen. So I think things are, have changed. Um, and the, the leaders, if you like, around that time have really kind of driven the message and the narrative a bit differently. Um, so I like to think that things like that won't happen again. But like all industries, you know, you have good actors and bad actors, right? And it's the job of the good to make sure that the bad are found out
1: it's i think it's inevitable unfortunately i think doesn't matter what industry you're in there's always going to be some sharks that are going to be kind of you know swimming around trying to sweep mm. up you know get the scraps in the red ocean and i th- i think it's that's just the, the nature of the beast of business unfortunately money does mm. makes people do curious things there was an interesting quote which i shared into the group actually earlier on this week um you know the it's a bible quote that's very popularly misquoted which is money is the root of all evil but actually the quote, the, pro- the right quote, if you look at it, is the love of money is the root mm. of all evil. Money itself is not evil. There's nothing wrong with going out and making a good, healthy profit. The beauty of that as well is if things do go wrong, you have bandwidth to be able to deal with it properly. Yeah. And actually some of the best uh, you know, aesthetics businesses that I've seen are getting five-star reviews for ha- how they have handled adverse reactions Ooh. to like Botox and fillers. Um, mm. And that says a lot about those Um, clinics. You know, at the end of the day, they're focusing on the things which you talk about in terms of that vision, mission, values, ethical, you know, moral upstanding nature of how they deliver their business, the right customer journey, having the right systems and processes in place i want to, I want to talk a little bit about that so you, you you do a lot of sort of um, marketing sales training um, with your clients, so business mm. development strategies so I want, to, I want to dig into that if it 's okay to. So yeah sure how do you kind of typically work with your clients and how can you is, is there if we can kind of tweak it so it kind of fits as well the nature of sort of coaches consultants, freelancers in the group as well
0: yeah okay, so what about, I do is so i take take them on the journey and um the the sort of the mission, if you like, is to create what well, was a beautiful business at the end of it, and for me, a beautiful business is something. Where it's 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 profitable, it's well run, but it's also fun. To, it's fun, right? You know, business doesn't have to be a total slog. It is sometimes, but we can have a laugh doing it, and allow their personality to be involved in all of it. So take them through essentially six six steps. I think you know, coaches, consultants, we all have our steps, right? So, so these are my six. Okay, so we start off with, with goal. Um, so goal, plan, culture, uh, community, opportunity and revenue, those are the steps. So the first thing is, is, what is the goal? What's the point of all of this? Why are we trying to achieve it? And it, at every single step, you have these realizations. Some people goals are pretty weak um, and wonder why they just sort of fail. If you know, goals are driven around money, as you just sort of you know, said, um, Money is not really a goal, money's a byproduct of something. So what's the goal? Why are you trying to do it? What's the burning desire? Once we understand that, then we can start to look at the plan. So, what's the strategy? How are we going to achieve all of that? Then, after that, then I really dig into culture, vision, and values. Um, it's amazing the number of businesses, and I think, as I say, my, my kind of bubble, if you like, is aesthetics, but I'm probably assuming that it's the same across the board, essentially, do so, don't do much work on culture, on themselves. Because ultimately, that's the bit that that's the real foundation for your business is who you are, your ethos, your values, your DNA. You know how you approach these sorts of things, and then once you've defined your culture, then you can attract the right type of client to you. Your culture brings the people to you, so you attract the community. The community then provide opportunities because they have problems you want to solve, right? So when you find out what the problems are. You solve them for them. That's the opportunity, and then we commercialize the opportunity, and we get value. In this instance, it's revenue. So we go through those steps: goal, plan, culture, community, opportunity, and revenue. That generally creates growth. And the funny thing is, is that when people hear that for me for the first time, they say, "Well, why are you putting money at the end?" It's because that's where it should. That's where it is. Is if you do all of those things, you invest the time, energy, and you know. In effort in creating that foundation, you'll make much more profit than you would do if you didn't do that. Well, it
1: comes as a byproduct
0: of, of basically yeah. doing a good job, but you've got to, you've got to, um, I'm just,
1: I'm just going to pick out like the obvious one goals, you know, cause everybody has mm. a different opinion on this. And, um, I had an interesting conversation with a, a client. This is uh-huh. quite a long time ago, about four years ago, um, who, who, builds websites for a living and, um, they were charging eight pounds for a basic hosting plan. And their goal was to get to 3000 pounds a month recurring revenue so that, for example, over the summer they had a young family. They just wanted to take four weeks off in August. I was like, cool. Mm. So they they wanted to get to three K so they could take the time off without having to, to enroll a new client, basically. And so I did a very quick calculation. I mean, this is why goals are so important, because it does mm. give us quite a, a big clue as to whether the business model itself stacks up. And I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into business models with you in a second. And um, all of a sudden it dawned on them that they had to um, have 400 clients in their business to create 3000 pounds worth of revenue ish, you know, mm. at eight pounds a month each. And I said to him, well, is, is 400 clients, you know, concurrent clients, is that realistic? Could you handle that? Oh, no, mm. absolutely no fucking way. Cause it's way too many. It's just me and my wife, you know, is that? and I said, cool. So how many could you, could you handle? And he said, Oh, before, well, you know, we could always take somebody else on. I was like, what a 3k a month, you want to employ somebody? No, that's just mm. not going to add up. Um, so we we kind of, you know, did a quick calculation and actually, you know, 80 to 100 clients was about the sweet spot for them capacity wise. And, um, you know, so it meant dramatically increasing their prices. So we had to mm. shift their, um, you know, basic plan from eight pounds up to 50 pound a month. Mm-hmm. Big increase. International sign of distress went out. Oh, we couldn't possibly charge that much. Nobody's charging <laughs> much. Fine, you'll lose a few clients. It will be the ones yeah. who don't get your value. It's, it's not, say, it's collateral damage. And they did. They lost 40% of their clients. So their revenue went up two and a half times immediately. Mm. Um, and that, that's the beauty of it. You know, from, from creating a goal, you can start to reverse engineer things. Yeah. Lo and behold, they hit their 3K target. It took a while. It took a couple of years to get there, you know, just gradually, incrementally, adding more and more clients. Mm. And web posting, if you find a good one, it's something you don't change. So they'll have lifetime clients there. Yeah. And actually, they hit it with just 50 clients. You know, which is, which is amazing because they, yeah. they, they, you know, through through going through these scales of initiatives, so it goes back to something you said earlier on about um, sort of the belief in pricing. Mm. So they had to believe that they could do £50 a month. Next thing you know, I, we step into a coaching session, they come back and say, Robin, we've just designed this all you can eat like care plan, which is £179 a month they've gone from £8 a month to like £179 a month. It's just, it's it's nuts. So goals are like so, so important. Revenue, I totally agree, is just a by, natural byproduct of doing what you do really bloody well. Hmm. Um, in terms of kind of delivering, you know, you talk about sort of knowledge-based business models. Hmm. Um, tell me what you mean by those and then maybe you could give us a couple of examples that perhaps some of the listeners could integrate into their businesses.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's um, it, it's interesting because because the market I deal with are generally hands on. So there's all you, when you're going back to it, it's like having to hit, shatter beliefs a little bit, you know, uh, break things open a little bit. And um, when I look at just sort of the, the goal thing links into this is the definition of goals that I have is um, I don't like I don't really use the smart goal. I kind of I know it has value. But it's also, for me, it's kind of like how to suck the life out of something. Nobody wants a realistic goal, Richard, do they? No, how <laughs> suck the joy out of it. Right, let's do some goal setting, let's suck the joy out of it immediately. Um, so, and this ties into the sort of knowledge-based businesses is I start off with a, with a burning desire. Um, immediate, massive action, repeated consistently for as long as it takes, that's it. What's your burning desire? What's you know the immediate massive action you can take, repeat it consistently for as long as it takes. That's it. It's pretty straightforward. That's what we do. Um, now when you're looking at a business that is 98% makes you know revenue generated by someone coming in, being sat down in front of you and then being essentially massaged or given a facial or you know injected in the face, and look, they look at them and say, well, knowledge-based business. And they're like, how the hell am I gonna do that? So it's only something, something that we recently started to implement is having to unpack. And it works through the process where we start to look at a culture plan, et cetera, et cetera. We can start to unpack what they know. And one example is I had a, a, a dentist who, um, you know, get qualified as a dentist, went into aesthetics, but actually was sort of starting to specialize in, in sleep and starting to understand about how um, you know, sleep worked. You know, these are medically-minded people. She studied dentistry. She can turn their hands to different things. It's not a problem. Um, yeah, how sleep worked, you know the difference in terms of you know being exposed to blue light before sleep, hormones, and essentially then moved into looking at biohacking. And um, what I said to her was, you've got a course here. What do you mean? She says, right, what is it you're trying to achieve? What's the goal you're trying to achieve for your clients? So we've kind of looked at that and it's like, right, you want them to sleep better. Fine. You want them to have a better life. So how much of that first exercise exercises said, how much of that needs you to actually physically be there to do that? And then once you sort of shake the tree a little bit and look at, well, I don't really need to be there to do that. And I don't really need to be there to do that. It says right. So about 80% of it, you could actually put as a video or podcast, or you can create some asset that doesn't require you to be there to actually facilitate this. And so the same thing if you're, you know, if you're doing skincare or anything like that is a lot of the knowledge transfer, you can actually get that outside of the physical contact. So the way I explained it to people is think about having clones. So if you could clone yourself, what would you have that clone do? So you've got a clone that can specialize in lots of different things. You know, we can reproduce you. So one the, I always say it to myself is, God, really awesome if I could re- reproduce myself. And I else actually you can. It's just called do a video, <laughs> you know, <laughs> put that video on a, somewhere that someone can watch it and draw them towards that and then charge them for the for – because the, it's still valuable, right? It's still a revenue generator and you charge them for it. Um, so one – and I think, you know, the, the knowledge-based business um, – it's, it's it's in aesthetics is going to become quite a big part of it, especially as we move into the second half of, you know, 2020 and as we move, you know, into the, into the, this, this decade, um, people's comfort with online purchasing, online video, online consultations, all that sort of stuff is going to improve. It's going to increase. Right. Um, everybody's being forced to look at a camera. who has been forced to, to integrate and communicate through digital means, whether they want to or not, that's going to continue. So the businesses who are now taking that and go, right, this isn't just a thing that's happening now, it's something that's going to persist, and I'm going to make the best of this, and then actually weave it into my business model. They've got a really great opportunity, um, and that's essentially what we've been working on. My That was my plan for 2021. It's now literally just been brought right here, bang, right now, because now it needs to be delivered. Well, you've answered one of the questions I was going to ask, which
1: was kind of what you what are you working on at the moment? And I think, um, I, I think it's going to be um, a massive shift. I mean, a little nod to the current crisis. So I didn't, you know, we didn't want to sort of talk about this necessarily on the podcast, but I, I am, I am concerned that there is going to be um, a dearth of like. On online, you know, e-learning courses and things like that coming into the market and whether that might, you know, whether they're good or bad or whether it's going to end up saturating or not. I think it's going to be a really interesting time coming out of the back of this. But I think what you're talking about is quite different. It's actually, you know, back it up with a very substantial, like, you know, um, piece of, of, you know, knowledge that's not just Mm. created on sort of an ad hoc basis. Um, Mm. We're we're kind of coming towards the end of the interview, um, Rich, already. Time's absolutely flown. So um, I would encourage anybody to um, go and grab hold of a copy of Changing Faces, which is Richard's book. Obviously, it is aimed at um, aesthetics businesses, but you can dig into this um, with any business, basically, and get an enormous amount of tips. So that's
0: available on, on Amazon, isn't it, Richard? It is, uh, yeah. Just put in changing faces, um, and it will pop up. We'll we'll share a, a link to it in the show notes as well. Yes.
1: Um, if anybody wants to reach out and touch base with you, if they've um, if they've enjoyed
0: listening to you, um, how can they do that? Um, simple way is you just ping me a friend request on Facebook. I'm in the group. I'm in the community. Richard Crawford Small. Just you know, reach out ping me say hi um and we can we can start talking if you want to email me um i'll put my email address in the um in the link as well but uh, richard at rcsconsulting.co.uk um and yeah if you need anything reach out i'm generally easy to get hold of
1: awesome thank you Richard I've got one final question and this one mm-hmm. hopefully it's not too much for curveball you may need a moment just to think about it so <laughs> I want you to we're going to hop into the fearless business time machine now and All we're right. going to go back to a, a t- you get to choose which you know it's like um, back to the future here you get to punch the date and then choose when you're going to go back to go and have a word with Richard Crawford small T minus X number of years okay when when would that be and what would you say to Richard then
0: Crikey. Um, all right, I will go back to, I can't remember the exact date, um, but it will be around this, around sort of autumn in 2000, sorry, in autumn around 1997. Um, and the date I'll go back to is the moment just after um, I ruptured my cruciate ligament playing rugby and um, it was a bad, bad tear, bad injury. Literally severed it and caused quite a lot of damage in my knee. And I was 24. I was um, still serving in the Navy. I was I was good at my job, actually. I was very, very good at my job. I'd just been passed for promotion. Um, so I was just about to go on to the, the, the course to qualify. Um, and I would have my, my next ship was all lined up. Everything was set. And I was, you know, playing rugby at reasonably high level as well. And um, everything just stopped on that kind of second where I got caught around the the, the neck, pulled back, my leg went underneath me and I heard this massive crack and I felt it inside my knee. And then massive amount of pain, huge amount of pain. I was sick on the pitch, Um, you know, and I got told at that point then that, you know, I was looking at two years rehab and um my my life had just collapsed my career had literally my never career just ended um and um i'd go back to him right there when he's in the ambulance on his own because i remember being there and in that moment thinking what the hell am i going to do and i'd pop up stick my head in there and go mate back yourself you're all right you'll be absolutely fine it's in fact you're going to look back on this moment and as much as it hurts um this has opened up a whole new window for you and you're going to rock it. So don't worry. That's what Did I say you, to
1: I don't, I don't normally, because that, that's an amazing, um, it's, that's amazingly powerful. I don't, I normally kind of leave it there, but I'm just curious, at, at that point when you're in the ambulance then, were you kind of like, shit, this is,
0: you, were you really knocking yourself? Yeah, because, you know, I was, um, the, the job I had was physical. And I, you know, I knew, I knew where my, na- where my knee went, that this wasn't going to be quick. Um, or an easy rehab, and also, you know, sports science and medicine back there. And also, to be fair, military hospitals weren't great. <laughs> um, so I kind of knew that I was in a bit of trouble. Um, and um yeah, it was just a kind of one of these moments where I sort of like, right, just for, I, you have a kind of a 22 year career path laid out in front of you, and you know that, you know, you want to become, you know, Lieutenant, lieutenant commander, you know, you know, you want to finish your career because that was my job. That was what I was set up for. I was going to go right the way through. Um, suddenly, you know, that's not going to, that's probably not going to happen. So, as you said, the international cult sign of distress. Um, and I had to essentially, the, the word of the moment is pivot. And um, I didn't know what that was at the time, but it gave me an opportunity actually to learn how to do lots of different things and made me realize that I was probably cleverer than I gave myself credit for, um, much more adaptable. And, um, it, yeah, it allowed me to get involved in something I really, really enjoyed, which is, you know, technology, but also, you know, I didn't know that I could do marketing. I didn't know that I could do these things. So, imagine what would happened if I'd made that through that tackle <laughs> yeah
1: well yeah <laughs> you know? but but at the end of the day Richard you have backed yourself I'm um, in awe of what you've created with aesthetic entrepreneurs you know we had, you. had the pleasure of sharing the stage with you at the recent um, um, aesthetic medicine conference you know which is such a pleasure and I'm so grateful for that opportunity you know um, what you've what you've um, like I said the advice you've got in your, your changing faces book as well is absolute gold you backed yourself mate you didn't know it at the time but you backed yourself you did it so it's um, it's a really powerful message.
0: It's all we can do at the end of the day. What <laughs> we can control and what we can't control. All I can control is what I do. Yeah,
1: 100%. Listen, Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really appreciate you and your time, which you've given up for the Fearless Business podcast. And um, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you very much
0: for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Robin.